Well, thank you for being here this evening. We're going to look at chapters 9 through 14 of Zechariah. Uh, I was getting ready to just go over the first 13 verses of, of chapter 9 and kind of get going verse by verse, but kind of felt, especially as I started doing the introduction, to kind of give a, a general overview of the whole section. Uh, chapters 9 through 14, uh, up through uh, chapter 1 through 8, there's been a certain style. There's been an interpreting angel that's been there. There's been kind of a pattern. There's been an, you know, a general outline you could create. Uh, but ch- switching in chapter 9 through 14, uh, the, the style changes. Uh, there's no date given. Uh, it, it's broken into two sections. There, it's called uh, an oracle, or uh, the Hebrew word is masa. You can see it's there uh, in point two, M-A-S-S-A. It means burden. Uh, it's a burden that's been laid on. We'll talk about the word more when we get into the verse. But a burden or weight that's been laid on the prophet. And it's got two sections. It's chapter 9 and 10. In fact, if you look right now at chapter 9, I'm looking in the NIV. So it's taken the phrase or the word masa, an oracle, and it kind of uses it as the title of the chapter. It almost looks like an NIV insertation, like it's a title that it's added. Uh, depending on what translation you've got, it should actually be in the text. Uh, and so chapter 9, verse 1, an oracle, the word of the Lord, is against the land of Hadrach. And then if you go over to chapter 12, it begins the same way. You can see right there, uh, it says, an oracle in my NIV. And the other translation, again, is going to be in the text or different places. And that's the second one, chapter 12 through 14. So the rest of this book, there's six chapters left, and there are two oracles or two masa two burdens that are laid on Zechariah to begin to explain now when this took place we don't know when this happened uh, I, I've written here in the notes we're going to assume it's, it, it takes place after chapter 1 verse 8 so after 518 BC uh, and I would even push it potentially we don't know for sure but after 516 515 after the temple was finalized and complete and society is up and running the exiles have returned they've got the temple uh, they've made some adjustments from the earlier prophecies of Haggai and Zechariah this would then possibly take place sometime after that as he's kind of now laying the foundation for what takes place from you know this point right here 516 going up and again remember all these events here are what we'd say future in Zechariah's day so he could be talking about some of these in fact we're going to eventually make a connection to Alexander for sure. Uh, in fact, chapter nine, as we go, and I was going to start doing that tonight. But chapter nine, as you read through it, it talks about the Lord marching down from the north, going through Syria and going down in through uh, uh, Tyre and Sidon, and eventually into the Philistines uh, territory. That's exactly the the route and the result of Alexander as he comes and defeats the Persians. Uh, empire and then marches down and continues to take territory uh, and so it's it's a good possibility that the things he's talking about when he talks about the lord coming it's actually alexander coming as the hand of the lord just like the assyrians were the hand of the lord and you've got babylon persia greece these are all the empires god is using uh, and it kind of leads up to the coming of the christ and so right here in chapter 9 and 10 your, both of these are, and I'll read through the notes, get it a little bit clearer. 
there is clearly a king that comes here. Sometimes it's portrayed as possibly Alexander doing it. It doesn't say Alexander. There's actually no connection to any contemporary people or events. It's all, in a sense, prophecy. Uh, but yet it's not even clear prophecy as far as what, when it's taking place. Uh, but Alexander appears to be bringing the judgment of God, but then a king is going to appear, uh, and this is, we can make a clear connection, this is the first coming of Christ, but then there's going to, this king that's coming is coming, you know the verse, he's riding on a donkey, he's gentle, he's humble, uh, he's coming in, in mercy, but then another king comes, and this king comes victorious. He brings judgment. He sets up a universal reign. He defeats the nations. The nations that are what's ever left of them come to him and almost submit to him because he has come and defeated them. And this led very clearly, and it, it makes sense for us. We, we, we're standing on the other side of history looking back through the lens of the apostles and the gospels, and now we're interpreting it from on this side of history. But if you were a member of the Jews in the first century, if you were a member of the Qumran community uh, that met down by the, the, the Dead Seas, they write about and make it very clear they're anticipating two messiahs. That they, they, as, they, as they navigated their way, just like we're trying to decide, you know, pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, amillennial, pre-millennial, you know, we're trying to figure this out. They're trying to put all these pieces together, and clearly the, this king is coming but it's not this king, because this king comes humble. This king comes in a universal reign. And Isaiah does a very similar thing. And so they put those things together, and they're going to use, you know, we, when we talk about eschatology, it's easy to talk about, you know, the writings of, you know, Isaiah or, you know, Jeremiah or something, especially Ezekiel. But Zechariah here is, is one of the predominant books that is going to be used uh, right after, you know, uh, the writings of Ezekiel and Daniel. Uh, Zacharias used a lot in, in, in Revelation for references. Uh, but you're going to see two kings. And we understand this as being the first and second coming of, 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 of Jesus Christ. Uh, let's look at the notes so I can get started on this and get so I don't just get scattered comments. Check point one, Zechariah 9 through 14 contained two undated oracles. No date is given. It could be assumed they come after chapter 8 and, you know, maybe after 516 after the temple is completed. The two oracles from the Hebrew word masa, they mean burden. Uh, chapter 9 through 11, it's going to describe, and we'll read this starting next week, and I'll read a little bit through it tonight. And I, I want to do a little bit of reading through Zechariah, but as we read these first verses in chapter 9, he's destroying, the Lord is destroying the Gentile nations. Now, there's been a, a going through Zechariah, there's been, you know, commentators and people that have been teaching through Zechariah. Some come to this point and they say it's just scattered. There's no pattern here. There's just scattered comments. Because you really want it to say, like, this is the date. It's going to happen, you know, at this point. But the prophecies, they seem to almost be, like, repeated. The Lord is coming in judgment on the Gentiles. And then pretty soon this king shows up. And then, then he's rejected. And then all of a sudden the Lord's out. Now he's judging the nations again and judging idolaters. And then the king comes again. It's like, are we repeating this? And in a sense, we are. Uh, potentially, th this part, the, the chapter 9, is going to be talking about this age going up to the coming of Christ. 
So like, again, this is prophetic for Zechariah. He'll be talking about what's going to be taking place historically with the coming of the Greeks, the Jews, because the, the Jews, Jerusalem, is going to be delivered in chapter 9. The nations around Jerusalem are judged and fall, but Jerusalem is spared, and the Lord dwells with them and shows favor. And it sounds like the end times, like he's coming to Jerusalem to establish his kingdom. But that happens again later in chapter 14. And so what's happening in chapter 9 and 10, it could be Alexander, we'll talk about it more next week, but Alexander comes down and when he gets through all, you know, uh, Tyre and Sidon and Syria and then wipes out the Philistines, he turns to Jerusalem and a couple things have happened. One, he's had a dream. Josephus records he'd had a dream. Alexander had a dream not to spare this city. But also the priest, and this is, uh, this is recorded in the Jewish writings, also they march out to meet Alexander, not with a military, but with the book of Daniel, saying, you are the goat, and you are here to defeat the bear. You're going to defeat the Persians. And, and he gets off a horse, his horse, and pays homage to him and goes with him into Jerusalem and worships at the temple. Alexander the Great worshiped in the temple in Jerusalem as a Gentile uh, and, and you know, gave him gifts and honored the city and marched on and defeated Egypt. And that's exactly what's taking place here. And so that was, in a sense, that's going to be God coming, bringing judgment on the Gentile nations, sparing his city, showing favor to his city, and they continue on into the coming of the king. The Messiah is going to come, riding his, not a horse, but a donkey coming in. And history then continues. And now we would be living in between here. In fact, I can show you the verse where, where the church age takes place. The church age, it, it takes place between chapter 9, verse 9, and chapter 9, verse 10. Jesus has done this, but he has not done this part yet. In fact, the, the writers of the New Testament, the Gospels, they, they clearly identify this is Jesus. But at no point do they even give him credit for doing this part. He hasn't done that. They don't even claim that he did it. But the whole New Testament's based on the idea that he will come and do this. So the whole, in, in, these, in, in chapter 9 through 14, we are living right here between those verses. These things have happened. We're here, not even mentioned. We're just like squeezed in there. And then these things are going to happen after us. Um, and so that's uh, point two, the two oracles from the Hebrew word Masa. The first one, chapter nine, nine, chapters 9 through 11. The destruction of the Gentile world power and Israel's strengthening and protection. Which again, it's confusing because it sounds like eschatology. It sounds like the Lord is coming to destroy the nations and to exalt Jerusalem for the kingdom. It's like, true, but it's, it's probably Alexander and then the coming of Christ and then the fall of, you know, that's not, not a complete, it's not a complete fulfillment, but it sounds the same. Then chapter 12 through 14 is the purification of Israel through trials to purge them for the final great conflict with the nations. Now there's going to be another conflict with the nations. In fact, there's, there's an idea that there's going to be a false shepherd show up that's going to abuse the people and then the nations are going to gather around to destroy Jerusalem. And that's where the Lord is going to go out again. But this time it's not Nebuchadnezzar. It's not the Assyrians. It's not Alexander. It's the Lord himself will go out and fight. And it's not going to be like, he, he's, he, well, we don't know it hasn't happened yet. But when 
you know, God brought, you know, Nebuchadnezzar in to do his judgment of Jerusalem. The Lord did it, but it was Nebuchadnezzar actually the one that physically getting it done. Or Rome came and destroyed Jerusalem. That was fulfilling Jesus' words. Alexander, I think, is going to be the one that's going to be fulfilling chapter 9. It says the Lord will march from the north. Well, that's Alexander marching from the north, if, if that's the way I'm going to interpret it. Um, but when you get to chapter 14 and, and that second judgment of the nations, and it's going to be now a universal, not just naming these cities, but it's going to be a universal judgment, that would match with Revelation other places where the Lord is actually going to, is that going to be Nebuchadnezzar or Alexander? It's going to be the Lord Jesus Christ coming, and it's going to be the second coming. And you can see why they've got two messiahs, but you can also see why we understand it the way we understand it. It would be hard, I, in fact, we, it, it should be pointed out, the way I'm interpreting Zechariah, it would almost be impossible, assuming that what I'm going to say is correct, it would be impossible to interpret it the way I'm going to teach it uh, before the Gospels because you just don't see these things. But once you see these things, and the writers of the Gospels, they're, they're watching and they, they, they're, they're the ones kind of dividing it and saying, okay, this is what Jesus did, but he hasn't done this part yet. And then Jesus ascends into heaven and says, I'll, I'll, I'll be back. And he's got all these verses left to be fulfilled. Um, but anyway, chapter 12 through 14, the purification of Israel through trials to purge them for the final great conflict with the nations before they are transformed into the nation of the Lord. Point three, both sections have a clear coming of the Lord. This has led many Jewish groups in the ancient world to anticipate two messiahs. Chapter 9 through 11, the Savior, the gentle, humble. We call that the cross. Uh, they didn't. They just thought someone was going to come. Chapter 12 through 14, the sovereign king conquering and ruling the universe in victory, and that would be the crown. The cross comes before the crown is the way we would say it. And that is what Satan was, in the, in the temptation, Satan was tempting Jesus to do chapter 12 through 14 and skip this part. It's like, I'll give you the kingdoms. I'll, I'll give you them. Just, all you got to do is, you don't have to go through all this, just I'll give this to you. And Jesus take, goes ahead and he's rejected. They pay the 30 price of silver for him. And then we're waiting for this. And now when he comes back, he's going to have the full universal reign. Point four talks about the style and focus of Zachariah's writing in chapters 9 through 14. Uh, that it changes. I mentioned I'm going to read through some of it. But the exact same thing happens in Isaiah. Beginning in chapter 40, there's a, Isaiah changes his whole message. He's talking... The, the judgment of the nations and, and, and Jerusalem and warning Jerusalem. And then he transfers into chapter 40 and he starts talking about this future and, and you're going to have the Messiah is going to come and, and, and Israel's going to be restored. Has more hope and promise in it. And some have led, and you've, if you've you know, done any studying or you get with the wrong group of people, uh, they say there's two Isaiahs. There's the original Isaiah, and then because he closed his book, and then later on, a second Isaiah. There's two books of Isaiah, the first book and the second book. And the second Isaiah was just, they just kind of put it together. It really wasn't written. It's not even the same style. Uh, the problem with that, if you want to go with the integrity of the Bible, is Jesus quotes from the first book of Isaiah and says, as Isaiah said. And then he quotes from the second book of Isaiah and says, as Isaiah said. So Jesus himself recognizes Isaiah. So if you're going to say, well, there's two different men writing here, you can say that, but Jesus didn't know that. Or Jesus was just playing along with what everybody thought. Well, the same thing takes place right here. 
And some have, you know, we go through the commentaries. I, I don't read those commentaries, but the commentators refer to them and say there are these people saying this. Uh, that this, Isaiah, Zechariah wrote these, but then someone else went ahead and added to it, and they just tacked it on because it's so different in style. But, again, the theme here is just repeated over here. You still have the restoration, but it's, it's written just a different style. And that's what's saying right here. Uh, there are no clear outlines. Now, I'm going to provide you a couple outlines and show you, I think, how this can be broken down. But you've got to work at it and then look for it. Uh, and again, I don't want to make something up. But it's not, it's not clear. Like, for example, chapter 1 through 8, chapter 1 through 6, these are the eight visions on this night. And here's vision 1, vision 2, vision 3. And then right along with that, here's the interpreting angel telling you, you know, says, Zachariah saying, I, I don't know what this means. Angel says, this is what it means, okay? And it's like, very clear. You've got your outline, you've got your interpretation, and it's pretty clean. Where here, it's, it's almost the same thing written twice. The nations are going to be destroyed. Jerusalem is going to be preserved. Some other things are going to happen. A king is going to come. Then the nations are going to be destroyed. Jerusalem is going to be saved, and the king is going to come. And it almost sounds like the same thing, or it could be. There is no accompanying interpretation, point C. There is no clear connection to contemporary people or events. He doesn't name names, doesn't name events. It's all kind of just thrown out there as far as future. But you don't know how distant future it is. There are cryptic allusions, vague references to enemies, battles, betrayal. There's a, there's sections that promise peace, prosperity, and final victory. But then the journey to this is long and winding. There's always throughout this whole, all these chapters... It's always, there'll be peace, there'll be prosperity, there'll be a kingdom age, but now there's going to be all these conflicting events taking place. Uh, Jerome, point G, Jerome referred to the book of Zechariah as, quote, that most obscure book of the prophet Zechariah and of the 12 minor prophets, it's the longest. So of all the minor prophets, it's the longest, and it's just an obscure book. Now again, I think you can navigate your way through chapters 1 through 8, pretty clean, but he was struggling with chapter 9 through 14. That's Jerome, who made the Latin Vulgate translation. Point five, the phrase, on that day, is going to occur 18 times in this section. 18 times the phrase, on this day. And on this day, or on that day, is a clear technical term for a, a, an event in the distant future. That, that's, that's within the context of the book. So when it says... On that day, he's talking about there's a day in the future when this is going to take place. Now, this phrase, on that day, seems to introduce new sections or units of thoughts. And those sections and units of thoughts, I'm going to show you in an outline. So in other words, even as we're going through this, you've got an, an oracle or a masa. You've got these two burdens. But as you're reading through this burden and this burden or this oracle and the second oracle, on that day will be written in, and it's almost like here's a new thought. We're switching directions. Uh, not, it's not complete, but it's, it's worth considering. Point six, uh, the focus of these last six chapters is the Messiah King. When it's all said and done, the thing that we're looking at here in these last six chapters is the Messiah, the King that is coming. Uh, it's just confusing as to when he's coming, how many times he's going to come, why he comes and then is defeated, and then why he comes and is 
has a victory again. I thought we already had the victory. Now he's got the victory again. I thought Jerusalem was spared and never going to fall again. And then it falls again and now he comes. It just becomes, you know, clumsy it seems. Um, point 6a, the, the Messiah King will appear. Uh, the Messiah King will bring both judgment and blessing when he comes. Point 7, the declaration of judgment on the individual nations and ultimately all nations serves to support Israel's faith in their God but also to warn the Gentiles. Throughout these chapters, the na- and this is interesting, and it can get lost, uh, especially, you know, as you just read, t- looking for prophecy, Jerusalem being restored, Jesus coming, is the nations. And the nations are going to be spoken to. It's, it's addressing the nations. The prophets oftentimes wrote letters or prophecies to the nation. You go through Jeremiah, the prophecy to Babylon, the prophecy to Ammon, the prophecy to Edom, and they're, they're telling them, and it, it would appear that they didn't just write it down and put it in an envelope somewhere, but they actually sent, in fact, Jeremiah, one time he was handing out, potentially handing out his prophecies when a delegation of countries came to Jerusalem to meet, to plan some kind of revolt. It was at that time he had, here's your prophecy, here's, and he was ha- maybe even handing them, or Barak was handing them the the prophecies that were given by jeremiah of their future and their immediate future facing nebuchadnezzar so god spoke to the nations through the prophets including zechariah and what is taking place is one they're being warned of the judgment that's going to come to them and i'll read through this uh but this this warning is also ultimately going to provide them and now when everything else fails there is going to be mercy you can come to the Lord. God is going to, through these prophecies, prove to them, I'll read through the notes, that your gods, your, the, the, the rulers and authorities that are reigning over you, are worthless. I am going to demonstrate, I will I'll crush them, and you will know you have no hope. But yet Israel will still be there because I am the God of Israel. But when you're defeated, you can look up and say, you know what? We're going to change our mind. And you can come and meet with me in, the, in Jerusalem, and I'll meet you there, and you'll be just like Israel. You'll be just like, and he mentioned that several places. And so here's a little outline. God's judgment on the nation, point A under 7, God's judgment on the nation, or the nations, demonstrates the impotence of the God's ruling uh, those nations. So in other words, I will destroy you, and your gods can't help you. Point B, after the defeat, the remains of the nations will flee to Zion for protection and to honor the Lord. C, the defeat of the nations will result in deliverance, joy, and prosperity for the world. In other words, the nations, watch, the nations are, just like Psalm 2, are conspiring together. Now, you want to get in conspiracy theories it's not a conspiracy theory it's a fact since the days of genesis david addressed it in psalm chapter 2 the nations are conspiring together this is not from the news today this is not a tweet this is not you know the current administration this is not because of trump this is what the nations are conspiring to do is to set up a universe a universal kingdom where they rule with authority over the earth. And God has got them broken into separate nations and keeps them from unifying. 
And he's going to start off here in chapter 9 going through individual nations and cities as he defeats them as Alexander moves through as being the hand of the Lord. Jerusalem will be spared in that situation. But ultimately, when the nations are destroyed, this, their attempt to have a unified kingdom, a universal kingdom, is utterly smashed and destroyed. The world then, the world that they were trying to rule, will have peace. They'll have prosperity. They will have deliverance. They, you know, you want to say freedom in Christ. As, far, as long as the nations, the point here, according to Zechariah and the prophets, as long as the nations are in control, and again, we're living in that age, and we've got a great nation, but there's a, it's a spiritual battle. It's a spirit, the rulers and authorities have been driving this since the days of Babel and before. They are driving it in David's day, and he warns them, you kings of the earth, be wise. Kiss the sun lest he become angry, because his anger will flare up in a moment. You better submit your nation now to the Lord because he's coming. But if they reject that, and Satan, who offered it to Jesus, he, you know, he says, they're, they're mine. They were, he wasn't, and you know, Satan wasn't lying. He says, all the nations, the kingdoms, they've been given to me, and I can give them to whoever I want. I'm building a universal kingdom here on earth. Do you want, do you want in on this? Uh, and he wasn't bluffing. He could have. But Jesus, the one he was offering it to, is going to be the one that comes back and utterly destroys it. Because when the nations, in their fallen state, under the rule of Satan and his authorities, when they rule, there is no peace. There's oppression. I mean, they say, peace, peace. What what they've got is they don't have anybody blowing back at them. They've just got everybody oppressed. Uh, There is no uh, prosperity. Ah, for them the ruling class, but everyone else is driven into some type of fourth generation oppression slave labor. And they, they've, got, they've got peace, but you've got oppression. They've got prosperity, but you've got servanthood. And you aren't delivered, you are a slave. And so this is the world condition. It's like, oh, you're, you're a conspiracy. You, you, think, you think the nations are working... I'm not even talking about America today, the 2000 or 2020. I'm talking about Babylon, you know, the Tower of Babel. I'm talking about David in 1000 B.C. I'm talking about Zechariah here. I'm talking about Revelation, the book of Revelation. And when the nations are defeated by the Lord, then all of a sudden the threat is gone and he will establish his kingdom and the kingdom of God will come and be universal, but it will provide deliverance from all the people that were oppressed by their nations that had all conspired together to oppress the people, in order calling it peace, calling it prosperity. Jesus will bring deliverance, he'll bring true prosperity, and he'll bring true peace uh, in his kingdom. That's again point seven. C, the defeat of the nations will result in deliverance, joy, and prosperity for the world. So if the nations want peace and prosperity, their hope is still Jesus coming and overthrowing all the nations working together. Now, Jesus is not going to eliminate nations. He's going to bring them into this new kingdom that's going to be ruled by him. But without Jesus, I mean, you know, no Jesus, no peace. And uh, if, if you don't, uh, have Jesus, you can't truly have these things. They're going to be replaced, like I said, 
uh, by oppression. And point D, the judgment of the nations will end their attempt for a universal dominion and open the way for the universal establishment of the righteous kingdom of the Lord. And then point eight, we'll look at this now. The whole church age occurs between Zechariah 9, 9, and 9, 10. And I want to just flip over to chapter 9, 9 and look at this. Um, and again, you're familiar with this verse. Uh, chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now we'll talk about donkey when we get there. That's going to be a purebred animal that was used by kings coming in, used by the elite, the upper class. They'd ride on donkeys. They're like the sports car. Uh, when uh, uh, Solomon was anointed or when one of the king would try to be anointed, they would sit on a donkey. David would place one of his sons on his donkey, which means he's got the royal sports car. Uh, and and it's, it, it's not a work animal. It's not a mule. It's, it's a donkey. You read in Judges, like you talk about some of the judges they had, they'd ride on donkeys or they'd have a son that rode on donkeys or he had 30 sons and all 30 sons ruled a city and rode on a donkey. So there's 30 sons or 30 cities or 30 donkeys. That means these guys are, you know, they're coming in peace. Now the opposite of a donkey is a horse. The, your emperor, your king can come riding on a donkey in peace, humble, or he can come riding on a horse. Now when he comes on a horse, he's not coming in peace. He's coming with the military to defeat you. So open your gates, let the king in on a donkey. That's the, and that's Jesus came the first time on a donkey. I'm, I'm here offering you peace. But if you'll read Revelation, and if you read what's taking place right here, uh, there's horses involved. Jesus is coming back on a horse. He's not coming back on a donkey. So when he's coming back in a military state, uh, he's already came with this first offer of peace. Nonetheless, the writers of the New Testament, the Gospels especially, they recognize this, they, this took place. Jesus did this. But it goes right into verse 10. Because when he comes, gentle, riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey, watch this, the next verse says, I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem and the battle bow will be broken. Right there, those are three phases of weapons. Those are three levels of military. Uh, the chariots, meaning when, I, when he comes, he's going to eliminate the chariots. Now think of Isaiah. When Isaiah talks about they'll turn the, the weapons into farming equipment. Because they, you don't need, when the Messiah gets here, you won't need weapons because he's established peace. So they're going to take your weapons of the nations and turn them into agricultural equipment because you can't keep up. I mean, the, the crops are growing, I mean, faster than you can keep up. You need more harvest equipment. You don't need more weapons. There's no war. Uh, and this is not a, a, a plea for disarmament because you better be armed in this age. But when Jesus comes back, there's no logic for disarmament, or no logic for weapons. Might as well disarm. If you're going to disarm, take all that equipment, put it into agricultural equipment. Well, notice right here, that's exactly what's taking place. He says, I will take away the chariots from Ephraim, meaning there's no war chariots coming into Ephraim, northern Israel. 
and the war horses from Jerusalem. So in, in Israel, there's no chariots. There's no war horses in Jerusalem. I've removed the horses, and the battle bow will be broken. So he's going to establish, he's going to defeat all the enemies, or all the armies. He will proclaim peace to the nations. Now, see, he, has, he didn't do any of this stuff. He did not defeat any armies. He didn't disarm anybody. Uh, he did not proclaim peace to the nations. He made an offer of salvation, but there is no peace for the nations. He will rule with extend, he, his, excuse me, his rule will extend from sea to sea, and that would be from the Mediterranean Sea to the Dead Sea in context, and from the river Euphrates to the ends of the earth. And that's, that's his rule. So chapter 9, 9 took place. Chapter 9, 10 is the second coming. And so the church is sitting right there. I mean, that's where we are at. We, Jesus has rode in on the donkey, went to the cross, resurrected, and went to heaven with the promise, I will return, and we read Revelation, on a horse, and I'll remove all the weapons from the land, and I will establish peace across the nations and that's chapter 9 verse 10 uh let's go this is a great verse especially now go to isaiah chapter 9 because uh i always like to have a a christmas message and so get ready next two minutes will be the christmas message for this season isaiah chapter 9 it's kind of nice it's got zachariah 9 and isaiah 9 um, and, and you, you know this verse. And I'll read both verses together, and, and you can, you can, you'll, you'll see the break. And you can, you can, I'm going to say right away the same thing. The first verse has happened. The second verse has not. Now, if you're amillennial, you're going to try to make chapter 9, 10 be true, and uh, if Zechariah, and you're going to try to say 9-7 has happened. Now, you can think about your Christmas songs. You can think about what you've heard preached from the pulpits over the many years. But in my theology is chapter 9, verse uh, 7 of Isaiah, ha- or, or excuse me, 9, verse 6, has taken place. Then we are stuck in the church age until chapter 9 verse 7 takes place here we are isaiah chapter 9 verse 6 for to us a child is born to us a son is given now you know this right here there's your hypostatic union for to us a child is born the humanity of jesus was born but to us a son is given the eternal son of god wasn't born he was given for god so loved the world he gave his only begotten son, to become a man, a child in the manger. So that's, that's the hypostatic unit. A, 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 a child is born, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And now verse 7. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. So right there, somewhere in chapter 9, verse 6, or if you just want to make a break between 9, 6, 9, 7, you've got a break. 
there's a promise that he'll be leading the nations, leading the government, but he doesn't do that yet. And so there again, you've got that break right there. And that's similar to what we see taking place in Zechariah. Um, and when all this is put together, the, the, the scholars of, of the first century and before, were tr- they're, they're seeing, they could see this, this, this break, this disconnect. You've got one coming here on a donkey, but you've got the other one coming in war. You've got one coming with peace, gentle. You've got one coming, and it's like you've got one coming, but even Isaiah 60, or 56, 53, the Messiah is going to come, and, and he's going to be crushed. He's going to die. He's, the, he's called the suffering servant. The Messiah is the suffering servant. But yet, the Messiah is going to come in glory and rule and reign. And of course, it'd be, ah, there must be two. One is going to come and suffer, and the other is going to come and reign. And as, of course, who knows what we would have thought if we were trying to study back in the first century. Now, we're looking at this, and it's clear, it's, it's the same guy. Um, and that's point eight at the bottom of page one. Uh, it's point 8b, the Gospels clearly identify Jesus having fulfilled Zechariah chapter 9.9. The Gospels never claim Jesus fulfilled 9.10 during his earthly ministry. In fact, the New Testament is based uh, on the anticipation hope that Jesus will fulfill chapter 9, verse 10, and Isaiah chapter 9, 7. Uh, turn the page on your notes. Interestingly, uh, these are four quotes that are coming up in chapters 9 through 14, actually 9 through 13. Uh, that are in the Gospels. Uh, chapter 9, 9, the king comes to Zion humble and riding on a donkey. Chapter 11, verse 13, 30 pieces of silver thrown into the house of the Lord is taken into the Gospels and interpreted when Zachariah or uh, Judas throws the money. Uh, Twelve ten, looking on him whom they have pierced. And, chapter thir- and that's referred to in John 19, 37, and again in Revelation 1, 7. And the shepherd is struck, and the sheep are scattered, is referred to in Matthew and Mark. So those are four references, all referring to Jesus in his first coming, that the gospel writers say, aha, we're here. We're, we're, we just, we're fulfilling this phase of the, the prophecies. And then Jesus dies, is resurrected, and ascends. And you know what they were thinking in Acts chapter 1. They asked him, after all these things take place, they say, okay, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Are, okay, we, we're, we, we're with you. We're right in the middle of Zechariah, right here. We've, you've come, you rode on the horse, you, you've been the suffering servant, and now, the very next verse, you set up your eternal kingdom. The, the universe, are, okay, now do we start killing Romans? Are you going to now make Jerusalem the center of the world? It's like, it, he says this, Jesus says this, it's not for you to know the times or seasons. You know now, you know there's a difference between chapter 9, verse 9, and chapter 9, verse 10, but you don't know the time. You're stuck right here until I come back. So, until I come back, I've told you what to do. Proclaim the gospel. Go make disciples of all the nations. Tell them about the man on the donkey coming in peace, bringing the message of peace, because the nations tell them there's going to be judgment. We're going to destroy the nations or the uni- unif- unification of the nations, and establish a kingdom. So let them know I'm coming, because when I come back, it's going to be fast and furious. And so we're kind of stuck right there. That's exactly the way Jesus presented it. And so the disciples, again, 
they thought, as they're coming from Jericho, going into Jerusalem for Palm Sunday, that they're going in to take over the kingdom. Uh, something like this. Then Jesus dies. That, that shook them up. We, we never saw that coming. Although then they saw in the scriptures, they even quote all these verses. The shepherd is struck, oh, the 30 pieces of silver. Now it's there. Okay, now we understand. The next verse, he's going to set up his kingdom. So are you going to do that now? No, I'm going to heaven. You go preach. Okay, well, he's working really fast. This has been just three years. It's probably going to happen in the next couple months. Yeah, I mean, they, they, you, they had to be thinking the Lord's coming was near. Uh, that, you know, go, go preach because the Son of Man is at, James says, the Son of Man is at the door. He's standing at the door. Uh, and then the, the first... the first generation of christians lived and died and then here comes the second generation now and then now you're into the days of constantine it's kind of like okay this isn't panning out like we thought and you know what forget the idea of jesus coming back i think he has come back he came back in constantine just like he came in alexander and judged the nation at that time jesus has come and through constantine has established a kingdom, the, the, Byzantine, the Roman Empire has been Christianized. You've got the Byzantine Empire. We just didn't understand the scriptures. So we are in the kingdom age, and Rome is ruling. Constantine is God's representative. The Pope, all right, we're, we're good to go. And they, they ran with that for a while. And then they had problems with the Muslims taking over Jerusalem and all the holy sites. It's like, well, this isn't really what, where does it, where does it say this is supposed to happen? It's like, if we're the kingdom... Well, we're not fighting back. we got to fight back. So mount up your troops, march on Jerusalem. And the Crusades began. And they're now fighting in their eschatology. They're fighting in the kingdom of God. And it made complete sense to them. And then that all fell apart. We look back, we mock it, we laugh at it. But they're trying to figure out, then the Protestant Reformation takes place. And then it wasn't until the 1800s until we started actually studying eschatology going, you know what, and a lot of things we talk about you couldn't have talked to Martin Luther about it or John Wesley about it. They, they would not have understood what we see as eschatology. And who, I mean, I think we're right. I mean, I think we've got it nailed. We're waiting for all this. But it's like, you've seen for 2,000 years, people keep tweaking and adjusting their eschatology, trying to figure out, and I think we've nailed it. But then so did Martin Luther, and so did the Crusaders, and so did Constantine, and the disciples you know, they, they thought they understood. Now, they were accurate. Jesus says, it's not for you to know the time or seasons. It's like, the day, you're not going to know this. So, again, we humbly, or I humbly present this like there's something happening. Uh, but anyway, chapter, or page two. I've got two outlines there that are going to be interesting. Uh, and I, I really would like to read through all these verses uh, but we're talking about six chapters. I'd encourage you to take a look at it. Uh, this first outline. Um, it's uh, chiastic. That's the word how you say chiastic. It's got a pattern. And it goes like this. A matches A. B matches B. And C matches C and again I'd like to stop and read this but chapter 9 and 10 God comes to protect and bless that's a general statement God is coming we can just say uh, protect God is coming to protect 
and bless. But at the bottom, uh, chapter 13, 7 through 14, 21, God comes to protect and bless. That's when he comes on Jerusalem. So here, he's mar- going to be marching through Syria, protecting Jerusalem, destroying the nations here. And we could say that could be, we could go say 3, uh, 330, you know, 323, something like this with uh, Alexander. This is going to be when Jesus Christ returns, uh, the, se- the second coming, in a general sense. Okay, point two, uh, chapters 11, verse 1 through 14, the people reject, people reject the shepherd. Uh, point five, right before the bottom A, chapter 12, verses 10 through chapter 13, verse 6, the people repent and turn to God. They see here, they reject and they, they put him on a cross. It doesn't say they put him on a cross, but they reject the shepherd. Here, the people see the one they pierced and mourn for him. Here they reject, God comes, protects and blesses, sets Jerusalem up. The king comes riding in on a donkey, gets rejected. Here, the people are going to recognize the one they pierced is the king, is the Lord, and he's going to come back and help them. Uh, point three, uh, chapter 11, verses 15 through 17, there's a worthless shepherd. Just after the people have rejected the good shepherd, uh, a worthless shepherd shows up. So now we know where we are at in this. We would be living right here because this is the Christ being rejected and returning to heaven. This is the Antichrist setting himself up. We're living right here, waiting for this. Paul was waiting for this. Paul was saying until he's taken out of the way, the Antichrist is there until the time that he's taken out. Someone's going to be taken out of the way and he'll uh, he'll appear. And so that is... Uh, the worthless shepherd hurts the flock. Here, the, the flock is hurt. Uh, we, what does it say? It says uh, a third of them will pass through a, the fire. I can't remember how the, the term goes. Like a third of them will be spared, but the, a lot of them are going to perish. Uh, and that could be talking about, you know, jumping ahead, the tribulation. But then, right after that, the other flip side, chapter 12, verse 1 through 9, is following the worthless shepherd who, who terrifies the people kills multitudes of them the nations unite to destroy jerusalem so you've got the the worthless shepherd doesn't spare the flock that's followed by the nations trying to destroy jerusalem the people respond to the messiah and the messiah comes and protects and blesses so he starts off protecting and blessing if i could just summarize this through alexander the great he 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 delivers jerusalem Jerusalem's established in the nations as Alexander establishes the Greek Empire. When Rome comes, Jerusalem is there. The Messiah comes. He's rejected. Okay, then Jesus says, you reject me, I come in my Father's name, but you'll accept the one who comes in his own name. So he says, you reject me, you get this guy. Now, where's this guy at? We're waiting for this to take place. When this guy comes, the Antichrist, he'll destroy the Jews. Then the nations will unite as they've been trying to, they'll come to destroy Jerusalem. Then Jesus will be recognized when he appears, and they'll realize he's the one they pierced. 
they'll mourn repent join him he'll come back and protect and bless what alexander set up for the people to receive christ they rejected him the worthless shepherd came the nations now try to destroy jerusalem alexander protected jerusalem the nations will try to destroy jerusalem that's when the people realize who christ is and christ comes and does exactly what alexander was in a sense sent to do knowing good and well he's not the messiah but we've used the assyrians we've used nebuchadnezzar we've used cyrus we've used every one of those guys nebuchadnezzar cyrus was called the anointed one even the, the jews even today stumble on that because he's he's the anointed one and they're waiting for cyrus to reappear and that cyrus was the anointed one who let them build the temple this is the new cyrus the worthless shepherd is the new cyrus who's going to let them build the temple and they're going to be like oh no 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 you got him because you rejected the true shepherd and then now the nations are going to come and destroy you and then you're going to cry out and we're going to repeat that so uh that's that does that kind of make that's kind of where again this looks real simple when you start reading through those verses and then you're going to have to judge me you know as i'm teaching it's like what how's that it's it's not quite this clear and that's why people see what i've just written right here there it is there's your outline or uh keistic it's uh is that how you say keistic how you say it keastic uh there is this all idea no pattern it's just random no one knows I mean, that, that's, that's, that, that is an approach to the next six verse chapters. It's like, read them and good luck. But it seems like the apostles pulled out four key verses and plugged them right into Jesus' ministry. It's kind of like, okay, now you step back. It's like, do we have? It's not random. There seems to be a pattern, and uh, maybe we can know it. Now, I will read through this next one. This other outline is similar, just so you can see it, and then I'll quit. Uh a similar outline it matches this up and again especially this next one right here on that day when you see that phrase on that day you can sometimes match on that day up with how this next these next 12 points are kind of broken up it's kind of like it's kind of indicating something so here's what's going to take place chapter 9 verses 1 through 8 judgment and salvation of surrounding nations chapter 9 verse 9 through 10 the introduction of the king Chapter 9, verse 11 through 10, 1. Israel has battles and wins a victory. They're spared. Chapter 10, verses 2 through 3. Idolatry and the judgment of idolatry. Chapter 10, verse 3 through chapter 11, verse 3. Israel's battle and victory. Now you're going to see that three times. And then chapter 11, verses 4 through 17. The people reject the shepherds. Chapter 12, verse 1 through 9, Israel's battle and victory. So you can see, you, when you can find Israel's battle and victory three times in there, and that victory is like, yeah, total victory, we've now got world domination. And then you repeat it three times, it's like, well, which one sticks? What, are, are we repeating ourselves? Are you, are you wrong? What, what, what's going, what are you talking about? So that's why some people say, I don't understand. No one can understand this. Uh, and then, chapter 12, verse 10, Yahweh's servant is pierced. 
mourning and purification. They see him whom they pierced. Uh, they mourn, and a fountain is open to them, and, and the Jews are purified. And then idolatry and judgment is, is, is idolatry and is judged. Again, that's a repeat. Then the shepherd is struck, judgment, purification, and a return to the Lord. Israel's battle and victory. Now, this is that final battle and victory, and the Lord establishes his kingdom. And then there's judgment and salvation of all the nations. So once again, chapter 9, verse 1 through 8, and chapter uh, 14 through, yeah, chapter 14, uh, verse 16 through 21. It, it begins and ends with the judgment of the nations, which leads, listen, the judgment of the nations is, in a sense, is it's to, it's to break the nations, uh, the, the unified, the unified nation. That It's to break any attempt that they've got of the Tower of Babel. If, it's, if these nations work together, if it's the Assyrian Empire, it's going to be broken by the Babylonian Empire, which is they're conquering all these nations. You see, the Babylonian Empire wasn't Babylon. It was everybody. And that was conquered by the Greeks, Alexander. He went out and he's building his empire, which then was taken over by the Roman Empire. Well, eventually it's going to be the Antichrist Empire. It's, it's not just the nations that are the problem. It's the unification of the nations in this globalization of trying to build a kingdom without Christ that Jesus keeps tearing down. He tears down the Tower of Babel. He tears down uh, Assyria with Babylon. He tears down Babylon with the Persians. He tears down Persia with the Greeks. tears down Greeks with the Romans. And then eventually the Antichrist is going to show up with his plan. And this unification is broken. And when the nations are then broken apart, the nations now turn to Jesus, who is the king. And he's going to now unify that he's going to be the one who builds Babel if you would and there's a, but there's not going to be Babel in the sense that they're all one there's still going to be nations right there and so anytime in especially in this part right here anytime the nations are judged it's an attempt to break them down so they can see the truth and they can come to him and that's the way the book of Zechariah ends all the nations are are coming to him for worship uh, I'm going to read chapter 9 verses 1 through uh, 13, 1 through 13, and that's what we're going to talk about next week. And we've got to decide what this means. I'm going to say this is coming up right in here. Chapter 9, verse 1 through 13, just going to read through it. The word, okay, an oracle, this is the NIV. The word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach and will rest upon Damascus. It's towards the north, coming south. For the eyes of men and all the tribes of Israel are on the Lord. Everyone's watching the Lord move. And upon Hamath, too, both which borders on and upon Tyre and Sidon, though they are very skillful. Tyre has built herself a stronghold. She has heaped up silver like dust, the gold like the dirt of the streets. So Tyre and Sidon, they're in good position. But the Lord will take away her possessions and destroy her power on the sea, and she will be consumed by fire. Ashkelon will see it in fear. So as God's moving from the north down, he stops by Tyre, and she, no one can touch Tyre. He'll take care of it. And Ashkelon's the furthest north of the Philistine cities. He's like, oh my gosh, where next? Ashkelon will see it in fear. Gaza will writhe in agony. Ekron too, for her hope will wither. Gaza will lose her king, and Ashkelon will be deserted. Foreigners will occupy Ashdod, and I will cut off the pride of the Philistines. I will take the blood from their mouths and forbidden food from between their teeth. Those who are left, watch, 
those who are left will belong to our God and become leaders in Judah. And Ekron will be like the Jebusites. And remember, the Jebusites were absorbed into Israel. They, they were believers that they came into Israel. So that's what's going to happen to the Philistines. There, there's salvation. But I will defend my house. I'll defend Israel, Jerusalem. So they're going to destroy, in the north, they're going to destroy Tyre and Sidon. They're going to destroy the Philistines. Ah, but Jerusalem? No, no, no. I'll defend it. Now notice he's saying defend it because I thought he was marching, but he, now he's defending Jerusalem. So if he's the one marching, why is he attacking Jerusalem? And why is he defending his own attack? So something else is going on here besides just the Lord. And that, it, it would probably be Alexander. I will defend my house against marauding forces. Never again. Now here's, here's, here's a problem. Never again will an oppressor overrun my people. For now I am keeping watch. Well, yeah. Never. Okay, this must be the end times because if it's Alexander, Rome is coming. And they're going to fall. And the Antichrist is coming. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. You See, your king comes to you righteous and, and having salvation. So that, that now we're right into the Gospels. If we're going, see, I want to go chronological, some kind of pattern. Maybe that's wrong. So now we've got, now it's all set up. Here comes Jesus, gentle, riding on a donkey, on a colt, uh, uh, the foal of a donkey. Now, right there, insert church age. Not even mentioned, but in my theology, that's what I'm going to do. Chapter 9, verse 10. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. That's Jesus coming back, Armageddon type map. He will proclaim peace to the nations. I've broken down your Antichrist kingdom, your empires, and now you can all join me in universal peace. His rule will extend from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. Return to your fortress or your place of protection, O prisoners of hope. You are prisoners of hope. You can return to your fortress. Even now, I announce that I will restore twice as much to you. I will bend Judah as I bend my bow and, I, and fill it with Ephraim. I will rouse your, your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and make you like a warrior's sword. Okay, and I'll quit with that. And that's what we'll pick up next week. And that's our start of the last six chapters. I'll pray, and if you've got any questions or comments, please feel free. Father, we do thank you for the chance to look into your word. We ask that as we go through these verses, uh, that I would teach it clearly, that we'd be accurate in our interpretation, that you'd show us insights into our own lives and our own times, that we again may become the people you want us to be at this time and provide a witness and a testimony to the nations at this time in history. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for being here.